0: UHMP.
1: Welcome to the show. This is our regular Friday segment with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Max, thanks so much for being with us again this week. Really appreciate your time. I want to talk to you. I want to know about the proposals, a lot in the news about this, uh, regarding the potential, maybe the reality, of forthcoming free, a free education at our community colleges, at least free in terms of tuition and fees. What's the story on that and what's it's likelihood in this legislative session? So,
2: thanks Bill, good, good morning. Yes, very interesting and exciting that public higher education was talked about in the very first week of the new legislature, which started last week, and of course, uh, new governor, Maura Healy in her opening uh, inauguration speech. And two things came out, I can just explain that, but then I'll talk about what's, what's even more exciting in what uh, what Senate President Karen Spilka said in her speech, as well as what the MTA, the Math Teachers Association is putting forward. So very briefly, the Senate president just said very clearly in her speech, um, and it got picked up as the one thing she said, she said much more, but she said, we should have free community college uh, for for all students. And then the the, the new governor, Maury Healy, put it, it said in her inauguration speech, we should, uh, past free community college for those over 25. So, in other words, those who are beyond the the typical age of a college student, but people who later on in life need um, need a college degree, want a college degree, but don't have access to the same kinds of of uh, funds. So that's where that's where it is. It's been back and forth about whether it should be one or the other, and of course, the MTA thinks it should be both and and much more.
1: All right, so. I understand what the aspirational talking point is, but what's the reality of this? I mean, you you are very excited, I can tell, about the potential. What's the reality? What do you think is going to happen here?
2: Well, uh, it's just at the very, very beginning. And that's why, if I could, I wouldn't mind just reading a few lines from Karen Spilka's speech. She's the Senate president. And I will say, in all my years of advocating for public higher education, which now is running in past the past two decades. I don't think I've ever seen a, a, a leader, whether it's the governor or the speaker of the house or the Senate president, speak so long and eloquently in an opening speech of a new legislative session um, on behalf of public higher education. And so it gives me hope that there's, a, there's understanding that it's not just one little piece of the puzzle, but that it's time for a major reinvestment in public higher ed.
1: OK, so is this money, this major reinvestment, is this going to come from the new funds, from the uh, fair share amendment? Is this going to come from usual taxes in the Commonwealth? What, what, this is going to cost money uh, if we are going yes. to offer debt-free public higher education, at least at the community college for, and for the community colleges. Where's, where are the funds coming from?
2: Well, we... We, everyone, all of us, one, and I will say the MTA played a very central role in passing the Fair Share Amendment, the so-called Millionaire's Tax, on November 8th. And as of January 1st, um, that is now the not just the law of the land, it's in the Constitution that those making over a million dollars a year will pay an additional four cents on every dollar above their first million dollars a year. And that money actually starts, you know, for those who start paying... You know, quarterly payments and things that will start right away and and the legislature and the governor can build a budget for next year which starts on july 1st the new budget can be built upon the expectation of this money coming in and we predict it's we've you know, close good estimates of two billion dollars maybe more it could be a little less but it is a significant significant amount of money and it must be spent on k-12 schools higher ed campuses and roads, bridges, and public transportation. So, and, the, and I will say uh, a very strong thing that the Senate president said as well is she said, as long as I am Senate, Senate president, no dime, every single dollar will be spent as the fair share amendment requires on public education and transportation.
1: When you look at the proposals, do you see increased uh, numbers of people attending community college. Do you see more people applying to UMass? Mass? What do you what What's the what are the ramifications of the and the implications of this proposal and putting more money into higher ed?
2: Well, again, uh, the proposal that we are putting forward and will be put forward next week by Senator Joe Comerford, as the Senate sponsor, our own lo- Senator, will lead on the CHERISH Act, and we are putting forward a bill that is both debt-free public higher education both community colleges and state universities and UMass and investments in the faculty and staff and greening of the buildings um, a whole series of of things to to invest in both the quality and affordability of our campuses and absolutely the goal is to give greater access affordability debt-free affordability to more people we Massachusetts has the greatest percentage of adults with a college degree. But that's just about 50%, which is remarkable compared to other places. But that means half of the population does not have a two-year degree or a four-year degree. This is the adult population, obviously. And they might want that. They might need that for success in life in all all aspects. So our hope is, the goal is, that you make it truly debt-free. If you can tell a working class person that. Yes, you will be able to graduate without incurring tens of thousands of dollars of debt. They will say, I want to do that. I want to go to a two-year college, or I want to go to a, a four-year college.
1: I'm really surprised to learn this from you, Max. 50%, only 50% of adults in Massachusetts have a college degree, two-year or four-year?
2: Yeah, it's a little above 50 it's Sometimes waffles between 53 and 55%, and that is the highest in the country. But that's a lot of people. And frankly, we we know there are about 700,000 adults who have some college credit, but don't have a degree. So those are people who said, I do want to go to college. I would like to get an advanced degree and never completed it. And part of that, not all of it, but part of it is a big part of it is um, the cost, not just the tuition and fees, but also the cost, the full cost of attendance, living, housing, transportation, childcare, et
1: cetera. Many of the students at a community college or at the community colleges uh, are living lives where they have to work, where they have, in fact, responsibilities for child care, where they have to take care of an elderly parent or a, a spouse and or the children and on and on and on. And it's difficult to put together a college education for a lot of people. I mean, I think we have this illusion that, oh, you go to high school and then you go to college and it's all it's seamless. And that's not how it works for a lot of the people and a lot of the people who are the uh, the, the customers or the, the students who at, at, at college. And I'd appreciate your perspective on that.
2: Yes. No, Bill, I mean, that that is the powerful and beautiful mission of community colleges is it's open admission. Um, there are lots, of, most of the community colleges have more part-time students than full-time students that means they and they are more likely to be older have families have obligations and that's a really key point in our proposal which is frankly different than what uh, the senate president and the, the governor put forward we believe you cannot just look at tuition and fees and when people say free community college or free higher ed they often focus completely on tuition and fees But for someone going to community college, um, the tuition fees is something like 15% of the total cost of attendance. If you were to be a full-time student, which is the best way to be a student, the tuition fees is significant, but it's a small, it's just as I said, 15, maybe 20% of the total cost of what it would take for you to be able to do that, uh, to go to college full-time as I think people deserve. So that's why when we say Let's have debt-free public higher education. We in the Massachusetts Teachers Association say you have to co- account for the full cost of attendance if you're really going to make it debt-free and you're really going to make it accessible to working-class students. Otherwise, they will say, I'm, I'm not taking out those debts. I cannot do burden myself and my family with these tens of thousands of dollars of debt.
1: You mentioned Senator Joe Comerford's involvement here. Tell us what it is.
2: Yes, Senator Cummerford has been the champion um, over the last two sessions with our, with what's called the CHERISH Act, which is a, a major reinvestment bill that the MTA has pioneered. Mm-hmm. We have sort of rewritten it and made it even better this time, and so she will be the the main co-sponsor on the Senate side, and I will give her enormous credit for really lifting up the needs of the entire system, community colleges, state universities. And the UMass system and so we are hoping by next week, I mean, we will early next week formally file this bill and begin to advocate. On it, and as I said, it is both calling for debt free public higher education. For 2 year and 4 year institutions as well as investments in the programs that help students succeed in the faculty and staff that are needed. As well as, um, uh, greening our campuses, investing in the buildings so that we can also achieve our state's uh, climate goals.
1: Max, last question for you. This is a really ambitious as a, a, as a policy and, and as a proposal. Are, are you relatively optimistic that you're actually going to get a lot or some of this done this session?
2: Um, I feel more optimistic than ever before, but this is democracy. This is the legislature. This is, it's. A, it will be, quite a slog but I have to say the the fact that we have set the table that is the Massachusetts Teachers Association and our broad coalition have set the table by essentially saying here here's two billion dollars every single year that needs to be spent on education and transportation I feel and then to have both the Senate president and the new governor say that they want to focus on public higher education gives me greater hope. We just want to make sure that we use this chance to its fullest.
1: We're going to leave it there. Max Page, thank you so very much.
2: Thank you, Bill.
0: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
2: Skates cutting the ice and sticks pounding boards. The slap of the puck and a peeing off the post. The chirp of the whistle and the blaring of the horn. Hockey is here. Tune in for all the sounds of the season right here on the UMass Sports Network. 101.5, 1400, and 1240 WHMP.
3: Five eight six one thousand. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you, until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this. But insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Wayland Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with our Bella Insurance.
4: Getting your credit score and credit report free is another great reason to bank at Greenfield Savings Bank. With the GSB Credit Center, you can monitor your credit score and credit report as often as you like, set up alerts, and find tips on how to improve your credit score. Getting your credit score and credit report free is another great reason to bank at Greenfield Savings Bank. With the GSB Credit Center, you can monitor your credit score and credit report as often as you like, set up alerts, and find tips on how to improve your credit score. Monitoring your credit score and report is an important tool in protecting your fine- Finances and can help you identify errors and prevent fraud. Our GSB Credit Center is just one of the great benefits that comes free with both our free online banking and our free mobile app. And with the GSB mobile app, you can check your score and access your credit report free anytime and from anywhere using your mobile device. And checking your credit report at the GSB Credit Center will not affect your credit score. Sign up today at any of our offices or online.
2: Greenfield Savings Bank, greenfieldsavings.com. Member FDIC, member DIF. Mobile carrier
3: charges may apply.
0: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
1: We are so thrilled to have with us in the studio this morning Tracy Kidder, Pulitzer Prize winning author of Mountains Beyond Mountains and Soul of a New Machine and House and Among School Children, an old friend in hometown, of course, about people here in Northampton. His new book is Rough Sleepers. Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People. Tracy will be having a book reading and signing at Edwards Church, sponsored by the Broadside Bookshop, I believe, on Tuesday? Tuesday, uh, the
6: 8th. W- wait, no. It's, we'll uh, check it. We'll get we'll It's get, the 18th. The 18th. It's uh, 7 o'clock.
1: 7 o'clock. Okay, the book is Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People. Give us an overview of the story you tell in this book, please, Tracy. Which I just think it's as as I would expect. It's brilliantly written. It's totally engrossing, and engaging. You just can't put it down. Tell our listeners what the story is.
6: Well, part of the story is the doctor himself, who's really the main figure here. Uh, he's a working class kid from Newport, Rhode Island, which, but believe it or not, has a working class <laughs> Irish Catholic working class but largely. Uh, he was a star student and athlete. Actually, went to Notre Dame. Was salutatorian of his class, and he got one B in four years. He went on to uh, to, to to Cambridge to Cambridge in uh, England. Studied philosophy for a couple of years, uh, but he was one of these guys who, one of these people. I had an aunt like this actually, who was so good at so many different things, they had a hard time fix, you know, settling on one. And,
1: and so, as you point out in your book, he had a number of different jobs. He didn't go from college to medical school. No. He, did a, he, he went, took a detour to, to uh, Oxford and be, uh, to study Cambridge, yeah. Cambridge to study philosophy. And then he had a whole bunch of other jobs. Yeah, he did.
6: But you know, he finally settled on, on uh, medicine at 30. And that's a sort of interesting story. I mean, why he was so attached to it. But it had to do with an accident that he witnessed on the Isle of Man and how he sat with this guy with a horribly you know, compound fracture. And the intimacy of this encounter with a stranger, you know, it really interested him, and I think philosophy had driven him towards something that, where there was action. Anyway, he went to, he wanted to become a country doctor. He'd been up in Vermont, but the University of Vermont wouldn't even let him apply, because they said he was too old. And so he settled for Harvard, and he and he uh, and he. That's a, it's a great line in the book. He excelled there, and he went to. Um, he had, he had a residency in internal medicine at Mass General, which is, you know, sort of top of the line. And he was just finishing that up and was about to go on to a, res, a fellowship in oncology at the Sloan Kettering in, in New York. Uh,
1: a very prestigious position.
6: Right, when he was conscripted by a couple of the eminences at Mass General, Dr. The issue then was this was the mid-'80s, and homelessness had really just all of a sudden soared so that it couldn't be ignored anymore in the country. You know, there are a lot of different explanations for that. Maybe I won't get into them. But one of them was the Reagan administration. But it's worth remembering, just to step back for a minute, that during Reagan's entire time, he never had control of both houses of Congress. So other, other people <laughs> were involved in this massive cutting of social programs and the failure to do much about you know, affordable housing for Americans. Problems that, of course, still persist. Um, anyway, he didn't feel he had a choice. Oh, I- I'm sorry. The uh, a foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Pew Charitable Trust had uh, were, were sponsoring the creation of healthcare for the homeless programs in cities and inviting cities to apply for these grants. And uh, Boston's mayor Flynn really badly wanted one, couldn't, but he needed a doctor, and nobody wanted to sign up for this because the pay was lousy and you know, the prestige was non-existent. Uh, you know, uh, and Jim didn't want to do it either. I mean, he'd, I think I write that at Mass General, he'd been taught that the code of the hospital, the code of Boston Medicine generally, which is, you know, to pursue excellence in medicine, but not to confuse yourself with an ordinary doctor. You know, it was a real snobbishness,
1: I think. It's a and certain that, Harvard quality. Yeah, exactly.
6: And he, uh, he'd, you know, he he didn't want to be put out in left field, but then he decided it was going to be his year of giving back. And anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going into too great detail, but he ended up, with, when his first duty station was at the Pine Street Inn, Boston's largest homeless shelter, This was a, and it had a clinic, a nurse's clinic. That I think it was unique at the time in America, and it was founded largely by volunteers, nurses who were really angry about the way homeless people were treated in, in the big hospitals. So... Uh, and they let him have it when he arrived. Yeah, he, that thought, was, he, he, thought he thought he was, that going, was going to be anything. a hero.
1: I love your description of how he is received by the nurses who know everything. There's a newly minted doc yeah. who they think didn't know anything. Right.
6: This was going he thought to himself, his year of giving back. And, and they, they
1: accused him of that
6: when, when he got there. Right. They accused uh, him
1: of going to, do, of being on board to do a year, a year. of giving back. Uh, which is exactly what they didn't want. Which was exactly what he was planning to do. Exactly, and th- the battle was joined.
6: Well, it wasn't really much of a battle
1: because he lost. He, he lost <laughs> yeah.
6: immediately, and but he was taken then outside by this nurse named Barbara McGinnis, who have sadly died much too young. And she said, "Look, we want doc- We want. I want a doctor here. But you've been trained all wrong." And so, <laughs> she took him back into the clinic and said. And he was, he was about to put a stethoscope on it. She said, and she shook her head at him and pointed him to some drawer somewhere. He wasn't allowed to really be a doctor for about two months while he was working there. He had to soak
1: patients' feet. You tell a wonderful story about this doctor, Harvard-minted doctor, brilliant person. I mean, straight A student throughout yeah. his career is now washing the feet of homeless people, and it's not just for its religious uh, invocation. Not, not at all, you know, really. But, yeah. but for a real reason. It served a genuine purpose, a medical purpose. Tell us about that. Well, there are a couple of purposes. One is
6: that it, it just corrected something in his view of the world he felt. Anyway, you know, it, it, in medical school and in residency, he had been the one telling patients, well, we need to get you know control of your liver, uh, your, your liver numbers or your blood pressure. And here he was at the feet of patients. Uh, and he was sort of stifled too, but but also, as time went on, he began to understand that for homeless people who are on their feet all day, much of the day, uh, fixing their feet is a, is an enormously pleasant thing for them. Also, they often their feet go completely untreated, even talking about toenails, and it's a it can be pretty pretty disgusting, frankly, what he was dealing with. But you also find. Uh, evidence of other problems in the body, you know, neuropathies, uh, vitamin B12 deficiencies, but also maybe much more important evidence of past frostbite or trench foot. Later, he and a a young colleague did a study, and they found that people who had suffered either either one of those, trench foot or or, or frostbite, had a death rate about eight times higher than that of other homeless people. And mind you, Bill, uh, the death rate homeless people in Boston was about four times that of the general population for the rough sleepers, the people who sleep outside or in makeshift quarters, good. it's about 10, ten times greater, so and there's a real sli- massacre yeah. going on
1: And rough sleepers, uh, that term is a British term, tell us wh- how it came about or why Well, it's it's it
6: seems to have come arisen uh, in the 19th century, although I, uh, Jim's wife insists that she found a reference to it in Virgil's Aeneid about soldiers sleeping outside sleeping rough, it it, it's a it's a European term. It, for Jim, it's a kind of nice and colorful term, and, and gets around all the difficult ways of describing, you know, of, of you, what the terminology becomes an issue, as it does in almost everything.
1: And, I, you, and you use the word homeless as opposed to unhoused. I, oh, or, it's, it's
6: much more expressive and it's much more accurate. And I really dislike that our tendency to euphemize, for, to euphemism, we must not be understating the difficulties of. Of of these conditions, it's true that not everybody who is unha- who doesn't have a house has has no home, but it's often true, and it's generally the real problem here. Um, no home in the way I think of it is they have no home in our society. Not really, uh, but anyway.
1: Tracy, in Rough Sleepers, you tell the story oh, of Dr. Jim O'Connell. Yeah. Um, one aspect of the book, and there's a, I have so much I want to ask about, it, but one aspect of the book that struck me was how it starts, and tell me if I got this wrong, it starts with, in the third person, you're telling a story. And later on in the book, you become present. Yeah. There is a first person in this na- narration. Um, and that brought me back to Mountains Beyond Mountains, where you very much are present, which was different from your other books, where you're telling stories but, you're, and, but not present yourself. And it made me want to know, how this experience of your investigating and reporting and then writing this book how the experience of being with all these homeless people changed you
6: i don't know that it changed me bill i mean i you know I, all i did was set out to write a a good story a story that i had come across And incidentally this story goes on from where i left off yeah we'll come back okay but but the uh you know i didn't set out to do a good deed I but you know, I look for uh, and oh, neither oh, neither did he. No, exactly. But you know, I, I'm, I I I'm just I like I'm a storyteller, if I'm anything at all, and uh, I tend to all my career I've, I've looked for people who interested me, and then I get interested in the things that preoccupy them. I did what I ended up with tr- trying to do was to give you an incarnation of this enormous, uh, it's a big problem. It's enormously symptomatic of problems in America, I think. I get that idea from this doctor, uh, by the way. But, uh, I, I mean, it's impossible. I guess the biggest thing I learned, I mean, I, first of all, in the, in the first instance, I was, I was surprised to discover how many people were, were there in plain sight. You know, I think like a lot of Americans, I had developed this little sleight of mind, like a sleight of hand, to, not to notice uh, you know, this astonishing poverty right in the midst of our our very wealthy country. Uh, and of course, doing this work, I couldn't do that anymore. And I discovered, you know, what's so obvious is these are just human beings. They're a lot like you and me. You know, they all carry the most complex structure in the unknown universe on their shoulders. A lot of them, many, many of the people I got to know uh, had had unbelievably awful childhoods had never really had much of a chance had never enjoyed the security or the kind of education that you, one needs to to thrive in a, in the world generally you know i mean there are always exceptions but found and there was one guy in particular that i focused in on one a, a real uh, favorite of the doctors well, i say favorite you know that sounds wrong but the the cool thing about what he's done is is everything is done in teams and as he once said he, he once said to his his part of his street team, uh, to the whole street team, you know, uh, speaking of one patient, he said that he's the kind of person I have to be unreasonably nice to because I basically can't stand him. And the point is, you don't have to be, uh, there's always gonna be someone on the team who really likes a patient who is very, very difficult. That's why you have a team. You don't, uh, I'm I'm sorry, I'm digressing. Uh, He built an an astonishing organization where he was the founding physician of it. He hardly did it alone. And, and one of the problems with this book is that it suggests like, you know, it makes it almost seem like a one-man show, but I just couldn't write a big institutional history. Anyway, I mean, it's a, about 400 different employees. Uh, uh, they have a respite hospital in Boston where homeless people can go after operations or various medical procedures or when they really need to get off the street. It has four, 105 beds, 104 beds. It's called McGuinness House, named after that nurse. It's an astonishing place, a gem of a place.
1: We're talking with Uh, uh, Tracy Kidder. His new book is Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People. The part about this book that I think is so astounding is it puts you in the head and the soul of the people who Tracy's writing about. We're going to continue this conversation right after this quick break.
0: Get in on the conversation. Call 413-586-7140. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For
7: WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Rev. Jim McGovern says whatever model Amherst creates for offering reparations for African-American residents could set an example for other states as well as the federal government. McGovern spoke at a virtual African Heritage Reparation Assembly listening session Wednesday night and said the work being done on Amherst could spur on a federal bill he is co-sponsoring that would form a commission to study and develop reparation proposals for African-Americans. McGovern said on a national level he would support whatever appropriate remedies are identified by a study commission including cash to those who need it, similar to how Japanese Americans held in internment camps during World War II were compensated. Over two dozen arts organizations have been awarded grants for the Northampton Arts Council. The 32 grants, totaling $27,094, were allocated to the city by the Massachusetts Cultural Council's Local Cultural Council program. The funding will be used to support art projects and programming in Northampton. The Northampton Arts Council received 91 applications for requested funding. Grants were awarded in the following categories, dance, literature, media arts, multidisciplinary arts, music, theater, and visual arts. The City of East Hampton is launching an anonymous ordering system for harm reduction products. The East Hampton Health Department is developing the system, allowing residents to pick up free health and safety products like Narcan, condoms, fentanyl testing strips, and COVID-19 testing kits. Residents can order items through a Google form and pick up the items from a Dropbox located outside of the health department.
8: Hi, I'm Nick Rusco After a mild start with temperatures in the 50s, temperatures will drop back to the 40s and 30s by the afternoon and evening. Windy, any rain showers will come to an end by noontime with mostly cloudy skies. I'm Nick Rusco on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought
7: to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
8: Yo soy Johan Vega con la Sintesis Informativa de Holyoke Media. El fiscal general Mary Garland nombró el jueves a un abogado especial para investigar la presencia de documentos clasificados encontrados en la casa del presidente Joe Biden en Wilmington, Delaware, y en una oficina no segura en Washington que datan de su época como vicepresidente. Robert ex fiscal federal designado por el expresidente Donald Trump, dirigirá la investigación y planea comenzar su trabajo pronto. La situación se intensificó el jueves por la mañana cuando el abogado de Biden dijo que se encontró un documento clasificado adicional en una habitación de de su casa de Wilmington, que luego Biden reveló que era su biblioteca personal, junto con otros documentos clasificados en su garage. Si bien Garland dijo que el Departamento de Justicia recibió notificaciones oportunas de los abogados personales de Biden, después de que se identificó cada conjunto de documentos clasificados, la Casa Blanca proporcionó una notificación tardía e incompleta al público estadounidense sobre los descubrimientos. En otras informaciones, los precios al consumidor de Estados Unidos cayeron por primera vez en más de dos años y medio en diciembre, ya que los precios de la gasolina y los vehículos motorizados bajaron, lo que ofrece la esperanza de que la inflación ahora tenga una tendencia descendente sostenida, aunque el mercado laboral sigue limitado. Los estadounidenses también obtuvieron más alivio en el supermercado el mes pasado, ya que el informe del Departamento de Trabajo del jueves mostró que los precios de los alimentos registraron su menor aumento mensual desde marzo de 2021, pero los alquileres se mantuvieron muy altos y los servicios públicos eran más caros. El enfriamiento de la inflación podría permitir que la Reserva Federal reduzca aún más el ritmo de aumento de sus tasas de interés el próximo mes. El Banco Central de Estados Unidos está inmerso en su ciclo de aumento de tasas más rápido desde la década de 1980. Los funcionarios de la Fed dieron la bienvenida a la desaceleración. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
7: This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
0: This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We
1: continue our conversation with Tracy Kidder, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Mountains Beyond Mountains and Soul of a New Machine and House, and I think a total of 10 books, Tracy? I, I think so. <laughs> okay, give or take. I think it's 11 now. Uh, 11 now with the new one, Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People, an extraordinary story, a book you cannot put down. We, we're talking about what uh, Dr. Jim O'Connell did um, and this organization that he created. And I should interrupt myself to let our listeners know that, in fact, uh, Dr. Jim O'Connell will be with Tracy Kidder at the reading. They'll be in conversation at Edwards Church, Wednesday the 18th at 7 o'clock, the event sponsored by Broadside Bookshop. The organization he created was started kind of as a Well, it wasn't a one man band because there were the the nurses who taught him an enormous amount about how to practice medicine for the homeless, which was different. Yeah, very different than the usual practice of medicine. And they created this organization to give medical care to homeless people who, as you pointed out in our earlier segment, die at an extraordinary rate. Right. So, well,
6: I mean, now, nowadays, now, now it's and he was far from the only person creating this, but he was one of the leading lights. He was the founding physician, and so on. They have about four hundred employees. They have about thirty clinics in the, in Boston. They have this hundred and four bed respite hospital, an enormous range of services, and they and they serve eleven thousand unduplicated, as they say in, the, in that statistical word unduplicated people a year, and they serve them with an awful lot of you know, well, they give they they provide a lot of services, and 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 I, I can I could go on and on, but let me not go on and on. I think uh, I think one of the things I should say about their medicine, at one point he remarked that it was upside down medicine, and that is upside down from the from the usual these days. You know, the usual these days, for many many medical practitioners, is just is a very limited amount of time. You know, you gotta you gotta be productive, you have gotta be efficient. But you can't do that with homeless people. They've been too bruised. And they're and and especially when he first when when the program this both in health healthcare for the homeless program began, they were in such terrible shape generally uh, that you had to spend a lot more time than that. It's it's a kind of wonderful practice for a doctor who really <laughs> who wants to be able to spend the an adequate amount of time
1: with patients. Um, Contrary, quite- contrary as you point out to the system we now have, where doctors say every ten minutes or every eight minutes, go to your next patient, go to your next patient, yeah. go to your next patient, and that simply will t- drive homeless people away because, right. yes, it will,
6: and it and it has, you know, the pro- one of the problems right now. I mean, this also a, a, this is also true for nursing. I mean, you get to in this organization, you get to really do, if you if you really if this is a vocation for you, I mean, a, an advocate, you know, a. Yeah, vocation for you. It's uh, nursing. It's it's a wonderful place to work. I have to
1: say that, like, it's a calling for them as the way. Yeah, a calling.
6: It yeah. It, but build a problem. One of the big problems in America right now with our medical systems, and there are a lot of problems, is is the s- staffing and is nurses. Many, many have quit since the pandemic, partly because of the pandemic, partly because of just the s- the stress of it, but also I think, in part because of the the various ways in which. Uh, medicine has been made unpleasant. Um, it, it's a difficult. It's difficult sometimes to deal with these patients. But the nursing that I saw at that in that is, in that is organization was just remarkable. Uh, they're they're like almost everyone else down about a third short. They're about a third short on their nursing, and and they, and McGinnis houses is, isn't can't be fully occupied, which is a disaster really, because they just don't have enough staff.
1: At the beginning of this project by Dr. Jim O'Connell, you write about him going out in the van. Yeah. And that, to me, is those stories are just remarkable. Um, I, I didn't prepare this with you, but I was wondering if you would be kind enough to read a bit of that. Um, uh, this, this paragraph here? I, I have it marked right at the beginning, and maybe you could read a bit so people can hear what the book sounds like. This one or this one? No, the one near towards the bottom of the page. Oh, the, the
6: bo- okay. In the shelter clinics and on the van, Jim came face to face with dozens of people who hadn't seen a doctor in years, let alone a psychiatrist or dentist. He saw many with rotted teeth and many cases of scabies and maggots and lice. He came across people with AIDS who had been discharged from emergency rooms with no platelets, including a few who appeared in the lights of the outreach van with blood flowing from their ears and noses. Jim met an elderly man who looked fairly normal and took Till he took off his hat at Jim's request, revealing a grotesque-looking cancer that had invaded his head, paralyzing the left side of his face. That patient had been a professor at MIT, had suffered a psychotic break, and had been living on the streets for years, no one noticing or caring to notice what must have started as a small, easily-treated basal cell carcinoma now metastasized into an overspreading fatal growth which had reached his spine— Another man, 80 years old, was afflicted with a hernia, the likes of which Jim had seen only in a medical textbook, a hernia that, like the professor's cancer, had gone untreated for decades and now hung down below the old man's knees. At times, Jim imagined that he and his colleagues were practicing something like wartime or post-earthquake medicine. It was as if he had been parachuted into another world that modern technologies had never reached. The situation was appalling, the work overwhelming. And if he was honest with himself, utterly fascinating. You know, I will say this is early in his career. A lot of that stuff has been partly because of these th- these efforts. I'm sorry, partly because of these efforts. Um, it's nowhere near as bad anymore, really. Although the death rates are still ex- unex- extraordinarily high. But it really was a. That's quite. A, it was quite an experience, I guess.
1: I am wondering if you would. Uh, share with us what it was like for him to uh, essentially transform himself from this, uh, to be sure, eclectically interested human being out there in the world, into someone who is really venerated uh, as a uh, uh-huh. as, as a human being, as a doctor, as a healer, as a leader. Um, and this being something that comes to him and for him relatively late in his—he's thirty-seven years old right. when he starts practicing medicine.
6: Well, think about this, Bill. I mean, you—you're a person who's you know very skillful, and and you and you go to medical school and you get really good at medicine. You're fascinated by it, and then you find yourself—you know—reluctantly at first, but you find yourself among a bunch of people who need your services more than anyone else you can possibly imagine on Earth, because there is a third world inside our the richest country in the world, right in the shadow of these great medical institutions like the Brigham and Women's and Mass General. And, and you find that you can do this work, that you can begin to make, uh, you know, to improve the lives of an awful lot of people. And you, on top of that, they're extremely grateful for it. Now, you're not getting paid as much as, at least back then as, as you would in another part of the world, but it sounds like a pretty good job to me. you know. And in fact, I think medicine and teaching are the two greatest professions, if you love them. Of course, if you don't love them, they'll torment you every day. So, so he, he,
1: he found his way to this. I mean, he, yeah, Nothing so. about his background, though. His family, and you write about that, that was, that's quite interesting. He comes from a, you know, predict this person's out, uh, future. From his background, you wouldn't have predicted this at all. Tell us a little bit about that.
6: His father was a, a, an old Navy man from World War II. Uh, he worked in the Navy Yard at, at, in Newport. And he rose to a certain position, but he'd never finished high school, and he had two jobs, uh, one stacking shelves in a liquor store and the other you know, running facilities uh, maintenance for, uh, I think, the Navy War College. Uh, his mother was this delightful, uh, really intellectual woman who suffered from bipolar disorder and was often absent because of, because of bipolar depression, which would take her away from the children for a long time. And the most, I remember when he told me this, it was kind of startling. Uh, the kids be, be imagined that they, her mother, their mother would banish because they weren't being as good children as they ought to be. And, they, and so they, he said to me, you know, and they responded by behaving absolutely perfectly. He said, there were no fights in our house. I think from that, he, he himself suggested this. He is a man who avoids confrontation when he can. He hates it really.
1: And, 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 and he's very, very. Yes, he's very conflict diverse, which is interesting. Oh, yeah. Interesting. And
6: he's very humble and, and, and very, very self effacing. You know, as somebody, as his assistant said to me, he's so smart and he hides it so well. You know, he, uh, he's used this, though. I mean, it's, of course it's a liability. To, you know, everything we are in one way or another is a liability, but it's also good. I mean, it he, he left his mind, it left him in a position where he had to listen to, say, Barbara McGinnis. He had to listen to different points of view. He's a great listener to uh, uh, the homeless patients he, he meets, you know, it, and it, it it calms them. He used to, he was a bartender for a long time, put himself through medical school partly by bartending. And as he says, you know, it's the best training for this you could imagine.
1: Tell the story about <laughs> being at the bar with the leprechaun. Oh,
6: this is after a uh oh yes he, he he and his a couple of his buddies who had just finished their residency at mass general were were about to begin internship um, at mass general and they'd heard all these
1: horrifying stories anyway they're in a Horrifying! hundred-hour weeks, hundred and ten-hour weeks. Uh, you yeah. never get to sleep. Exactly. You, you, when you yeah. do sleep, it's at the hospital because you're back on duty, <laughs> right. and on and on and on.
6: Yeah. Well, the back it, it was even worse back then. Anyway, the, it, it was at the Black Rose Pub in Boston. It was it was uh, uh, St. Patrick's Day weekend, and they they came into the bar, and there's this little, this small man dressed like a leprechaun, dan- dancing on the tables, doing a jig, and going from table to table, and finally got to theirs. And he looked down, and he said, what's the matter with you guys? You look like you're, you know, you're, I forget what he said. Something you like just They were glum. Yeah, they were glum. And they told him they were about to become, you know, interns. And he said, oh, you poor SOBs. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's This is, you know, it's the worst thing. You just, just forget about it. And then I guess it was not too much later, a few months, Jim is being introduced, and in his these guys are, uh, meeting the hospital, and, they, and the director of whatever it was is there at the podium, and it's the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, he says, and he says to Jim, I, told, I warned you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a wonderful story. We are talking with Tracy Kidder. His new book is Rough Sleepers, Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People. So much more to ask Tracy, which we'll do right after this break.
0: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
3: They say that the one constant in life is change, and while that might be true for most things, one thing that hasn't changed is the great meal and great time you're always going to have at Roberto's in downtown Northampton. Stop by six nights a week to dine in, hang at the bar. If you don't want to eat in, there's always Roberto's new online ordering system. Just go to robertosnorthampton.com and you can order, pay, and pick up dinner six nights a week. Roberto's is open every day except Tuesdays, right on Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton. And save 30% on the Shop 30 store
0: bird watchers wanted at Winesick Nursery. If you like watching the birds and you want to see variety, keep in mind that Winesick Nursery is your bird feeding headquarters. Browse through a large selection of feeders, including squirrel-resistant feeders, hanging feeders, pole feeders, and finch feeders, plus all the seed you may ever need to attract cardinals, nuthatches, titmouse, chickadees, blue jays, buntings, grosbeaks, and birds of every color. Make some fine feathered friends this winter. Visit Winesick Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley and at winesicknursery.com. The Western Mass
5: Business Show with local dynamo, Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and
2: Sundays at 2, only on WHMB.
5: Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank, with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin Counties. GreenfieldSavings.com
2: The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMB.
3: Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org.
0: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Tracy Kidder. His new book is Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People. He and Dr. O'Connell will be at Edwards Church for a reading, a book signing, a QA. and a They'll be in conversation this Wednesday, the 18th at 7 o'clock, sponsored by Broadside Bookshop. I'd like to go back, Tracy, to the focus of the book, which is the patience. Yeah. Tell us more about well, when I first met him,
6: what first fascinated me about him was, that, you know, I was out in the van with him with some other people, and it just the, the warmth that was obvious between this Harvard-educated doctor and these, you know, people who were talking to statues, arguing with them, you know, a, a whole variety of humanity out there, which I, you know, was was itself a surprise to me, um, and it later I, I later learned, I mean, he said at one point to me. At medical school, we were taught to be friendly, but not a friend. And then he added, "But if we had taken that attitude with this population, we'd have gotten nowhere with them. He has uh, what he called it once, the whole system is, was a system of friends. Uh, and I, I think that's genuine. I don't think this is just pie in the sky talk. It, it sometimes makes things more difficult. He has very hard time keeping boundaries. Was one one of his patients his old classics as he calls them? I'm a patient of almost thirty years, who somehow has his phone number and would call him in the middle of the night. Uh, it was losing track of time. The guy was, and he'd be forgiven in the morning. I was. <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it, there was something so. And and I could see why he got so attached to to many of these people. Not all of them, but many. I mean, he tried to be a good doctor at all of them. But there was one guy in particular who had come fairly recently when I got there who turned out to be quite extraordinary. And, uh, anyway.
1: One of, the, one of the fascinating parts of the book for me was the discussion about why the rough sleepers are rough sleepers, why they first can't find uh, housing. Beyond that, won't go, often won't go to shelters. Yeah, Tell us about that.
6: Well, I, I mean, the reasons why they can't find housing are numerous. But one of the main ones is that some of them are actually virtually prohibited from it because of their criminal records, um, and and particularly if they have if they're a sex offender, uh, that's we, that we could talk about that forever. But the 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 reason they won't go to shelters. Are numerous, but I remember one guy saying. I mean, I think he said it to me, but he also people would say to Jim. He kept asking this question early on. I said, "Well, how would you like to sleep in a place with four hundred men, you know, snoring and and you know, threatening you or whatever?" And he said, "You know," he, he said, "I just can't do it." This this person, the most one of the more moving ones to him was a guy uh, who he who was living under of one of the Storrow Drive bridges, and. A really sweet guy, Jim liked him a lot. Jim, and on a horrible, cold, blizzardy night, he tried to talk. Jim tried to talk him into coming to one of the shelters, and the guy said he couldn't. And Jim said, "But why? I'm afraid you're going to freeze to death out here." And the guy said, "Look, when I'm out here, I can tell which voices are mine. When I'm in there, I can't. I can't tell which voices are mine and which are, you know, someone else's. I mean, it was just, he was suffering from schizophrenia, and this was, by the way." His his adaptation to it, they, I don't know they, you know there's there, there's as many different reasons as there are, uh, p- people there. Some of it's a, just a matter of pride. They call the people who actually go inside during this, during the winter months, snowbirds.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, I, I I would like to ask this is, you just can't get to everything. I, I have on my list to ask you. Um, I was really interested in, in who these people are and their mental health issues and drug and alcohol issues and their, uh, uh, all, all of that. And what their life stories that bring them to this place, to living on the streets. I, I'd like to conclude with this, if I might. You spent a lot of time for five years with Dr. Jim O'Connell. Did you become close to him? I think so. I mean, you know, he's a hard man to get.
6: I mean he 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 keeps to himself what the, the bad the things he, that are bad about him that he thinks are bad about himself I think more than most people I know uh, but you know he he did let me in uh, I'm very fond of him I mean I think I think he's he I mean he's so easy to be around and he, he makes it that way I guess quite deliberately he but I admired what he was doing and I was moved by it uh, you know you Bill, I wake up in the morning, and you probably do too, and, we, and we, we look at the papers, we look at the news, and we think that the world is ruled by chaos and cruelty. It's nice to see people like this who are actually putting up an effective fight. I'm not saying they're winning, but he and Paul Farmer, by the way, we're, were friends.
1: Really? Yeah, so. We come, we come full circle, circle, circle. We've been c- speaking with Tracy Kidder, his new book, Rough Sleeper, Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People, he and... Jim O'Connell will be at Edwards Church this Wednesday, the 18th at 7 o'clock for Book Reading, Signing, a Q&A, and a Conversation. Tracy, thank you for your time. Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful book.
6: Oh, thanks, Bill.
4: There's nothing like being in the same room at the same time, sharing your experiences with other women. At Cancer Connection's Breast Cancer Support Group, we can laugh or cry. With our burdens lifted, even for a little while, we can go back to our lives better able to handle dealing with cancer and all it entails. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today.
5: and local news
2: and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station.